This is Come and See from St. Andrew's Anglican Church for February 17, 2013. The Gospel is taken from the book of Luke, chapter 10, verses 8 through 13. The message is by Father Ron Baird. Today we come to the first Sunday in Lent. So the good news is that Lent is 10% over already. Amazing, it's just flying by, and it? just goes fast. Today we come to the lesson of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. It's a familiar lesson to most people. Jesus is driven by the Spirit after his baptism into the wilderness, which is really into the desert. And when he's up there, it says that he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and then he was hungry. To which I always wanted to put, do you think? I mean, it's like, yeah, I mean, 40 days, I'm be more than hungry, I think. But it says that he was hungry, and it's at that point that Satan, the adversary, chooses to come to begin the temptations. And he says, you know, you're the son of God, right? And he said, being the son of God, you know, you created everything anyway, so you could just look at that rock there and say, be bread, and it would be bread. So why don't you do that if you're hungry? And Jesus says, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And immediately we begin to see a clue about how it is that we are to deal with temptation in our life. Jesus goes immediately to the scriptures to begin to, to counter the temptations that will come in our lives. Now this temptation that Satan has, has put upon him is, is, is the temptation to fill his desires now, you might say that after not eating for 40 days, that would be not just a desire, that would be a need. But oftentimes our needs and desires get intermingled like that. And so, in order to counter that, Jesus says it is written. And what's significant about that is that he's using Scripture, just as we talked about on Wednesday, that we'll need tools to wander through in this journey of Lent if we're going to face our own brokenness, our own wilderness of sin. And one of the tools is prayer and study of Scripture. And it's not just, you know, sort of becoming a biblical scholar and doing lots of neat things with it. It's really a, a better word would be, better than study would be a familiarity with Scripture. Because when you become familiar with Scripture, you have it readily in your mind to, to call upon. And it's not important if you learn chapter verse. You know, that's fine if you want to. But in all honesty, when they wrote it, it didn't have chapter verse. We added that later, so... You know, it's not a test. It's really about the stories. Does anybody remember what comes after? It is written that man shall live, not live by bread alone, but from every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, which I just told you the answer. <laughs> See if you can guess what it is. <laughs> but from every word that proceeds from the mouth of God is what we live by. And that's what we talked about is this knowing and hearing the voice of God and being able to follow God in our life. That's how we live, not just by bread. Now, it's not that there's anything wrong with bread. You know, bread's fine. There's nothing wrong with any of our desires. You know, our desires are, are all given to us by God. They're not evil in and of themselves. They are only evil when we pervert God's purposes for them and turn them into selfish things. So the desire to, you know, accumulate wealth or to have um, affection from a loved one to, um, you know, to be eat, 
you know, sweet things, all those sorts of things. They're not evil in themselves. You know, sometimes it's hard for me to remember that because my, one of my problems and my desires is ice cream and, and, and ice cream talks to me and it says, come eat me, come eat me. And all too often I go, sure. <laughs> and it's not that ice cream is evil. In and of itself, ice cream is not evil. It's only when it's out of proportion that it becomes evil because it becomes destructive to our lives. So whether it's food or affection or, or money, whatever those things are that are our desires, they're not evil in and of themselves. They are evil when they are not being used in accordance with God's plan for them. God didn't make things that are in his plan, but we have a knack for figuring out a way to turn it to be about us and not about God. So we have to remember that we, you know, we do not live by our desires alone, but from every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So Satan isn't going to give up that easy. So he goes, hmm, thought he'd be hungry to do that one. So he says, well, and he says, it let him up and in an instant. That's what it's sort of like a flashback. Maybe you can imagine it. It says, in an instant, it showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And it says, all of this has been given to me. Now, it's interesting. He's sort of perverting what happened there. It hadn't really been given to him. It had been handed over to him, which means that God has allowed this to happen. He doesn't own it, but he thinks he does. And so he says, all of this is mine, and I give it to whoever I choose. And if you, in the New Revised Standard Version, it says, if you will worship me and serve me, I will give you authority over all of that. Now, that word worship that's translated there doesn't actually mean worship. It's not the typical Greek word for worship. The word is actually, if you will pay homage to me, if you will serve me as your liege lord. It's actually the word that they used, if you went and kissed the hand of, of your lord, that was the word that's being used here. And it doesn't mean worship in the sense of religion, it means worship in the sense of that I belong to you and I serve you. And so the Israelites and we know that that belongs only to God. There is no human who deserves that. And he says, but if you will do that for me, I will place you in charge of all of this. Now think about that. Jesus came into the world to heal a broken world because people were doing dumb stuff. And it was really messed up. And Satan is saying, hey, look, I can fix this problem for you. You serve me, and I'll put you in charge of it. You just issue the orders, we'll get it straightened out. You know, because you will have control. And that's the second temptation. The first one is to have our desires satisfied. The second one is to have control. Which one of us doesn't want control of our environment? I mean, we want control over everything. Now, how many people here would like to have control over their boss? Unless they're here, you can raise your hand. It's okay. <laughs> we'd like to have control, wouldn't we? We'd like to how many? We'd like to have control over our spouses. We'd like to have control over our friends. I'd even like to have control over my dog. I mean, but you know, they only didn't listen either. How many of us would like to have control over the weather today? I mean, all of us want to control things, and and you see it everywhere. Whenever anything bad happens, what's the first question that we get in the media? Whose fault was it? Now, why do we need to know that? 
so we can make sure it doesn't happen again, right? So we can control it. And we want control. Because just like we're afraid that our desires won't be filled if we don't give get ours, we're also afraid that if we don't have control, we'll be taken advantage of and abused or left out and abandoned. And so Satan's appealing to this basic, you know, human, you know, temptation that everyone has. And in Jesus' case, it's even more pointed because the whole reason that he came into the world was to turn the world around, to get it to turn back from its foolish ways, to be, go back to the way that God wanted things to be. And then Jesus says, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve only him. You almost see Satan at that point go, rats. And what's that one? And then he takes him up to the pinnacle of the temple, to the top of the temple. And he says, I tell you what, given that you're the son of God and, and you're cool, in Psalm 91, it says that if you were to fall, the legions of angels would come and catch you, lest you dash your foot against a stone. So, throw yourself off here. See if God really will protect you. I mean, after all, you're the Son of God. It's going to work, isn't it? And Jesus, once again, comes back. I almost thought he probably said, so you actually learned Scripture, did you, Satan? He kind of, that's the reason why familiarity with the whole is important. You can't take things out of context. You know, you have to take it as part of the whole. And he says, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, what's significant about this is that what he's appealing to is Jesus is, he's tempting Jesus on the basis of security. His need to feel safe. It's a basic human need, isn't it? We all want to be safe. That's why when we hear about the, all these horrific things that are going on you know, with, with the shootings and things and schools and movie theaters and all, we become terrified about it, you know, because it seems like the whole world has gone crazy. And how do we know that it wouldn't just happen to us? And we don't feel safe. And the fear of our life is what drives our temptations. But for Jesus, it's even more pointed. Because why did Jesus come? What's his mission? How? Through dying. He already knows how he will accomplish this, how, what, the, how, what the plan is. That he will go to Jerusalem where he will have his body mocked and spit upon and beaten, where he will be crucified, a terrible, terrible torture for the worst of criminals. Not only was it a physical torture, but it was... A, a, a torture of your very soul and your being. It was to tell the whole world that you were evil and, and don't do anything like this person did. It was a public display of your incompetency and your, your wretchedness that the Romans wanted everyone to see. And so you can easily imagine that it's an easy temptation because wouldn't it be great if we could pull this off without having to do all that? You know, there are some modern theologians who say that they don't really believe that Jesus was crucified because that was God's plan, because that would be, you know, akin to cosmic child abuse. I always thought that was an interesting one. It's like when theologians know better than God what he was doing. But, um, and they miss the whole point. They, they don't understand where Jesus is coming from. 
Because what you have to realize is what he says. It is written. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. God does not need to be tested. And then what's fascinating about it, it says that, and then Satan left him until an opportune time. Does anybody know when the opportune time was? In the Garden of Gethsemane. Because what's Jesus praying? Yeah, Lord, if, if there's any way, um, you know, can we figure out a different way to do this? Because <laughs> I mean, he's sweating blood. He's so upset. Because, and rightly so, if you knew what it was going to happen to you, you'd be sweating blood too. I mean, it's horrible. You know, if there's any other way, let this happen. And Satan then wants to tempt him again. And the way that he goes about doing it is fascinating. Because we know in the story from Monday Thursday that what happens is is that the high priest comes, the high priest soldiers come with Judas, and Judas kisses him on the cheek, and then they come to arrest him. And Peter immediately pulls out his sword and cuts off the ear of the high priest's slave. And Jesus says, Peter, put your sword back into its sheath. For anyone who lives by the sword dies by the sword. And then he adds something. Anybody remember what that is? Do you not believe that I could call legions of angels who would come and fight for me? They would catch me even if I were to dash my foot against the stone. There's the temptation. It's come back. And yet Jesus knows that what he has to do to accomplish this mission, no matter what the world thought of it, no matter what the world thought of him, no matter what it said about his safety, that his real safety came in being crucified. Now think about that one. His real safety was in being crucified, not in turning the other way. And so he knows that God will protect him, even in the midst of what is about to happen. Because he knows that on the third day he will rise again. And that death will have no power anymore. So we all have those same temptations. We all have desires. Some of them are stronger for some of us than others. We all have different kinds of things that, that are more tempting to us than others, depending on upon our background and preferences. But we all have those things that we, we really feel like we, you know, we really, really crave and want. And so when those things come, we have to remember that we don't live on the basis of our desires alone, but from the word, every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We all want to, to have control over the things that are going on around us so that they'll be done what? Right. Right means the way I think it should be. Unfortunately, there's too many of us, but, but so it can be done right. And yet, it is written that we shall serve only the Lord our God, not ourselves. And we all want to be safe. All of us want to feel safe. And you know, we pass countless law after law after law trying to feel safe. How's that working? And see, the problem is, is that those things are, it's not that they're bad in and of themselves, they have purposes. But they will never meet those deep-seated spiritual needs that we have. And just like the things that we desire are not bad, 
you know, laws are not bad. None of those things are, are evil in and of themselves. They just are things. It's what we expect to come out of them and how we treat them that either uses them for God's purposes or perverts them to our own will. And when we pervert them to our own will, then they become evil. And so we wander through this wilderness of our sin for 40 days and 40 nights, just like Jesus did. And as we go along, one of the things you'll find, if you take it seriously and really examine your life and look at that, is you will find that there are some wretched things in there. And you have to make a choice. You can either choose to sort of you know, get an eraser and try to erase it out so it didn't happen, or go buy it so fast and hope nobody notices you know, that that one was there. I don't want to, you know, that, I didn't do that. Or justify it and say, well, I may have done it, but it was so-and-so's fault, or I had to, or I didn't know any better. Or we can take an entirely different path. You know, because all of those are based on the fact that we're afraid. We're afraid to be who we truly are. You know, people made in the image of God who don't always live like it, who oftentimes fall short of the glory of God. If we choose to embrace it, which is the other opportunity, if we choose to, to pick it up and to carry it with us, we can make a choice about what that's going to be. We don't have to carry it with us as a mark of our shame. We can carry it with us as a mark of our salvation. We don't have to carry it with us as a mark of, oh, look how bad I've been. But rather, as look how good God is. Because He has forgiven even this and has redeemed me. Paul says it this way. He says, even while we were yet in our sins, Christ died for us. And if you think about it, isn't that exactly what happened with the cross? If you went to a Roman citizen and said, what comes to your mind when you think of the cross? The worst criminals, horrible death, leave them up there to be eaten by animals and crows and things. I mean, it was just gruesome and ugly and awful, and, and only really bad people deserve that. You think they'd want to wear that around their neck? Probably not. And yet, the very method by which the Lord was crucified is transformed into not a symbol of, of ugliness, but into a symbol of the power of God to redeem the world. Well, he didn't do that just because, hey, watch this, this is a nice trick. I mean, they'll figure this out later and they'll think it was really neat. He did it because that's what we are called to be and do. Not perfect people, but forgiven people. And the truth is, is you can't be forgiven if you don't have anything to be forgiven for. And you might say, well, secretly I have things to be forgiven for. Okay, then I guess you're secretly forgiven. We don't know it. You know, Paul really gives us the example of what it's like. You know, one thing about Paul, Paul never held anything back. He said, I am the worst 